Hi, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. This episode was recorded on Monday, April 23rd, 2018, starting at uh, 4.14 p.m. in Denver, Colorado, and this will be the 154th episode of the show. For more information about how to subscribe to the podcast and help support the production of future episodes by becoming a patron, please visit theastrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with Austin Kopic and Kelly Surtees about the astrological forecast for May of 2018. Uh, hey, guys, welcome back to the show. Hey, Chris. Hey, guys. Hey, so where are you both coming from? Kelly, you are on the road right now uh, visiting Australia, right? Yes, I'm here uh, in Sydney in my old childhood bedroom, as I realized as I was prepping this morning. And yeah, my one of my sisters is due to have a baby any day now. We thought she might come before uh, Duchess Catherine, but the Duchess has got her baby out. We're still waiting on ours. Uh, yes, so I'm on the road, um, but excited to be here with you guys. As always, it's such a nice check-in each month. Right. That's a funny time twins thing where she's, your, your sister's going to have a baby like right around the same time as the royal baby that was just born earlier this morning. Yes. Yeah. It is an interesting thing. So it'll just depend how close my sister goes. She, my sister could, she's due now, but as we're all learning, you know, babies come when they're ready. So it could still be a couple of days. Okay. Well, we'll look at the chart for that later uh, for the royal baby. Uh, yes. Austin, how are you doing? You're, you're at home in Oregon? Yeah. I'm, I'm in my office here in Ashland. Awesome. And uh, both of you, we're, we're all getting ready. I guess we're a month away now from the United Astrology Conference, and that's the next big thing looming where the three of us are actually going to meet up in person here in just a few weeks. Yeah. It's been years since we've all been at a conference together. I think those Norway, the old NORWAC conferences a couple of years ago. So it's going to be exciting. Yeah. Actually, I think it was the ISAR conference. Oh, I beg your pardon, Austin. You're right. In California. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, and yeah. the the pod that was when I won the award for the podcast, and we were all together. That's that right. Night. We yes. have a nice picture of all of us from that award show. Uh, all right. Well, uh, so we're going to be talking today about the astrological forecast and the major alignments for May of 2018. Uh, we've got a few pieces of news and announcements to get to first before we get there. Um, Kelly, what what do you have going on in terms of that? So look, the big focus for me, like I know for many of us for May is the UAC conference, but I will be running, of course, my subscription service, Stellar Insights for May as usual. And because we do have a pretty big event, Uranus moving into Taurus this month, I'm including a Uranus and Taurus extra in the subscriber package. So for people who are subscribed, you're going to get that free. And if you're interested or thinking about signing up, there is a couple of extra bonuses uh, to help you with Uranus in Taurus coming up for this month. So if you are interested, you can sign up via my homepage. Awesome. And your website is kellysastrology.com? Yes. Yes. Thank you. Okay. Brilliant. And Austin, what do you have going on? Well, I'll be teaching the second month of my Fundamentals of Astrology course, which uh, focuses on the construction and function of the Zodiac. And even though that's part, that's a, you know, a month long module in a larger series, um, people who are not taking the larger series, uh, are, uh, may enroll and just do that little bit. Um, I'm also uh, teaching a, a webinar on Uranus and Taurus. I actually scheduled it for the day of the ingress. So we'll be talking about it less than 24 hours after the ingress. And we'll be, I'll be doing history and then going through 
what the transits might look like to individual houses and planets within the chart. That'll be fun. And then that anthology of essays on astrological magic, the celestial art, will finally be in print at some point during the second half of May. Hopefully by UAC, fingers crossed and prayers said. That's that's really exciting. I'm actually really excited about that, that you have a new book coming out. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, you know, having done all of the, you know, having done gone through the final edit process where you read everything over several times, <laughs> uh, I'm really happy with all of the contributions. I think it's um it's a it's a it's a solid lineup. Definitely. And your voice is sounding particularly silky smooth today for some reason. Why why is that? Oh, I started gargling with vinegar. No, I got a new <laughs> mic. Yeah. So you you are on a new top of the line microphone. So we 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 up, upgraded ah! your setup, and you're you're sounding pretty good now. All right. Well, good. Good. All it's, right. It's. Uh, I hope it was worth it. Um, these, uh, as as you know, and some people know that the more sophisticated and higher quality the audio equipment gets, the more tiny problems which create big problems there are. It's it's touchy stuff. Yeah, change is always difficult, but I appreciate <laughs> appreciate you sticking with it, and it sounds good, and I think it'll be good in the long term. Yes. Well, I've been told that this would be the final upgrade, and so an end to upgrades sounds nice. This will be yeah. the end of the line. <laughs> I mean, this is this is the microphone that Michael Jackson used to record Thriller, so you can't really get any higher than that. I mean, that's pretty much the, the end of the line. It's also very popular with metal vocalists. Okay. Well, there you go. Well, some of our listeners will be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, okay. So that's so news and announcements. My only piece of news and yeah, announcements- Yeah, you've got something going on. Yeah. So my main thing is just every once in a while, I don't do it very often, but I decided this month to do a, a discount on my Hellenistic Astrology course and all of the other courses that I offer. So it's a 15% discount that's good through the end of April- so it, it expires actually May 1st. But if you're listening to this over the next week or so after I release this episode and you're interested or you've been meaning to sign up for one of my courses, like my Hellenistic or my Electional Astrology course, all you have to do is use the promo code uh, JUPITER. Just type in JUPITER in the promo code field when you sign up for the course and you'll get a 15% discount. So um, yeah, I'm excited about about a year ago, I switched to a new course site and it's finally at a place where it feels really stable and it feels really, really well rounded. So I'm excited to bring some new students in for you know the spring and for the next few months of basically teaching and to sort of show it off and get some some new people going through the program. So you can find out more information about the courses at theastrologyschool.com and the promo code again is Jupiter. All That's right. a clever promo code. Yeah, I was thinking of good promo codes earlier today, and I was coming up with overly complicated ones, and then I was just like, well, you know, Jupiter, that's perfect. That's like Apotelismatics? Yeah, that was the name of my first blog. Like, I was not, not thinking of, that was literally the name of my first website was Apo Apotelismatics Astrology Blog. But then it's funny because then you can see my progression if you go through my websites to uh, increasingly less and more straightforward like keyword targeting like then it became the horoscopic astrology blog but then it turned out that nobody knew what horoscopic astrology really was yeah that's and a fancy then, technical term uh, i was hosting traditional astrology radio but then that was overly like restricted on traditional astrology traditional. and now i'm doing the astrology podcast and and that just <laughs> yeah 
Well, I, you know, I used to call my uh, my weekly column Abyssal Epistles. Nice. <laughs> oh my I like God, that. you guys. <laughs> so one yeah. of the first bits of advice I got way back in the day when I started writing astrology, if you want to be able to connect, you know, with a lot of people about your stuff is that you're writing for the girl on the bus. Um, now that was very light. I was doing some work for women's magazines at the time, but it really reminded me of how important it was to keep things as simple and clear. The other thing you know we have in writing and editing land is the idea of don't use you know a two dollar word when a penny word will do. Like use the most simple word you possibly can to communicate what you're saying. So right, and so that's exactly the, the opposite part- of what I do. Yeah. <laughs> do you well? I don't, is that the opposite of what you do, Austin? Because you have beautiful imagery that is very accessible. Um. It's I I I I write the astrology column that I would like to read, or at Got least it. as close as I can. Um, yeah, I'm not. Um, if I write for the sort of lowest common denominator, I will hate my audience and myself. Um, right. And so there are a lot of people doing, you know, um, you know, and half of my sentences have like eight commas in them and are compound, complex, and. Uh, I will use whatever word I think is most evocative and beautiful, uh, which is usually not a two penny word. So, yeah, but there, you know, there. Well, it's, the writing I think is good. It's good to do what you're doing, Austin. It's more when you you've got a headline or like a blog title, for instance. You want that to be, you know, like the the name of the website. You want to be accessible or un- easily understood. The whole content doesn't have to be that. It's just the URL, for instance. Yeah, I um. You know, I, I, I feel like to a certain degree, I can do things the way that I want to do them because there are plenty of- We all can because we're self-employed. Well, yeah, but because, you know, some people are doing more accessible work, there's plenty of room for me to do whatever version of <laughs> whatever, whatever I, I feel, you know, whatever speaks to my, uh, uh, you know, my artistic sensibilities. I mean, I see this tension. I see this playing out all the time. In terms of there's a tension between people wanting to pick a, a poetic title for something, like a book, let's say, versus a purely descriptive one. And and the issue I always have is that is the question is, do you want it to be found? Like a poetic title is mm. nice, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're gonna find it. So that's why I titled my book like Hellenistic Astrology, because that's what it's on. And then you have the subtitle whatever, the study of fate and fortune. But if you do the poetic title first, then sometimes yes. what you're putting out there is harder to find. And that's one of the the tricky things about that that debate, even though I can kind of see both sides. Yeah. Well, yeah. go ahead, Kelly. Oh, I was just going to say, yeah, I, I don't want this to be saying, I think we should be writing for the lowest common denominator because actually, Austin, I, I actually do something similar to you where I think it's important to be a little bit more nuanced and a little bit more detailed. I mean, your style and my style are different, but we both go beyond the most accessible version, if you like. Um, but I think the point you're making, Chris, it's almost like the titles and the headings are the gateways. You don't want them to misrepresent, but you do want them to be found. And there is some tension in there around you know, how you find that balance. Yeah, like obscuring what you're trying to present, accidentally obscuring it or making it harder to find versus, you know, something too simple or or where it's too obvious that you're just focusing on keywords and and figuring out the balance between those two. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and there's also um the question of who is the the book or blog, whatever the piece of writing is, who is that intended for? Mm. If if you've written it to um, you know, appeal to 
you know, millions of people, then it should have a title that, you know, that is that accessible. But if you wrote something, you know, like when I, I wrote my book on the Deccans, 36 Faces, that's not for everybody. Now, a lot of people don't care about <laughs> you know, uh, an obscure division of the zodiac that has Egyptian roots, right? I was like, you know what? This isn't this isn't a you know this isn't a New York Times bestseller. This isn't a pot boiler. But for what I figured is for the people whom it was for, they'd be like, oh great, there's finally yes. a book on the Deccans. And so what I did, you know, what I decided to do title wise was. Um, you know, somewhat evocative, mysterious title, 36 Faces. I think that's a intriguing, to me at least, that's an intriguing but kind of creepy image. Like, it's a lot of faces looking at you. And then the literal subtitle, The History, Astrology, and Magic of the Deccans. Right. It's perfect. Well, yeah. thanks. Yeah. So anyway, so that's always a funny, it's a funny tension. And because Adam and Eugenia and I mentioned, talked about that earlier this month, because like my podcast comes up and that's one of the reasons I switched names was because I knew it would come up when somebody searches for astrology it's podcast and like basically iTunes. a combination of the two keywords. Right. Versus like, if you, <laughs> if you, if you name it, like if you name it something else that just like sounds good and poetic, but it doesn't have any of those keywords, like stellar explorations or something like that. Nobody's going to search for that when they're searching for like an astrology podcast. So it's just an interesting thing as you get into doing things as a professional astrologer where sometimes you're met with questions like that about whether to go with something poetic or go with something descriptive. Anyway, so that's a weird digression, but this let's is a move. total word nerd debate. Which right. with Saturn in Virgo, I love. I love well, these word nerd I, debates. I, I think it's. I think it's relevant um, to astrology as as a whole because that's the question of you know how technical to get in your de descriptions. How much? How much of your? Uh, how much of your work do you show? Um, versus how much do you just say what you think the result will be is, you know, is another, is a constant challenge and is another version of this, uh, approachability versus nuance thing. And I, I think it's actually a pretty core tension that astrologers struggle with. I think that's a beautiful point, Austin. It's like, do I give you the whole recipe or do I just show you the cake that I baked? Like, do I just give you a piece of the cake or do I say, these are all the steps that I got there? And I find that too with my own writing is how much of the process that I followed to get to this, do I share or show in the piece? Sometimes there's a word count factor. Sometimes there's a, you know, a time where you think I just want to put a 500 word blog up or I'm going for gold. I've got 3000 words. I'm putting everything in. And there's a different time. Like I think different circumstances or, you know, some things are better suited to the shorter, less, uh, in depth or less backstory and others are more deserving of that detailed treatment. Um, and that because we do work for ourselves, we can often decide that based on our preferences. Definitely. All right. Uh, so we're still in the like news and announcements sections. Let's, let's crank the rest of those out really quickly. One other major announcement we needed to make is since UAC, the United Astrology Conference is happening in Chicago next month at the end of May, we're actually doing a, a meetup with listeners of the podcast, which is going to take place on Saturday, May 26th, uh, 2018 from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Uh, in the Halstead foyer on the fourth floor of the hotel that the United Astrology Conference is taking place at. So this is going to be like a meet and greet with listeners, and Austin and Kelly and I are actually going to record a brief like 45-minute or maybe an hour-long Q&A 
where we're going to answer some questions and basically record a live podcast episode right there at UAC uh, with an audience, which we've never done before, uh, but should be a fun experiment. And if it goes terribly wrong, there is going to be a bar so uh, we can get some drinks afterwards and laugh about it if it's a big disaster. <laughs> I like so, that you have a contingency plan, Chris. <laughs> yeah, always have a backup plan. Uh, that's that is what I that's my 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 thing. But anyway, it's going to be fun. So I hope I know a ton of people are going to be there at the conference next month, and I think we have a big enough room to ho- hold a lot of people. So if it's your first conference, it's like one of the reasons I wanted to do that at the very least was not just to record an episode, but also. For a lot of people, this is going to be their first conference, and I wanted to be able to connect other podcast listeners with each other uh, because sometimes that's like the most important thing about conferences, or that's a very important element is just connecting with other like-minded people who are studying the same thing. And if you already have some point of similarity, which is that you both listen to this podcast, then that already gives you something that you have in common. So uh, yeah, everybody should join us that night. It's totally free. Uh, just show up there at seven o'clock and we'll play it by ear and see how it goes. It'll be All right. great. It's good to have those chances just to meet with like-minded people or meet with people you've got something in common because that's just an icebreaker and then who knows where things can go. Yeah, exactly. And I'm going to be signing copies of my book at some point or I can sign copies. Austin's going to be signing copies of his new book. Kelly- Well, if it arrives, be- fingers crossed on that. No, no promises. It might- it, the it might arrive in print the day after UAC. It might be the day before. So let's not jinx it. Hopefully, hopefully, um, there will be copies of the new book. All Very right. exciting. Well, Austin will be signing something, whether it's like babies or body parts or what have you. <laughs> I'll sign your cast. Right. You, know, you got you got a broken wing. All right. So uh, that's next month. Last news and announcements thing is uh, giving away three books. So every month we give away a few books to patrons of the Astrology Podcast uh, to thank them for supporting my work with the podcast over the previous month. This month, I've got three books to give away. One of them is a copy of Young on Astrology uh, by Saffron Rossi and Kiran LeGrice, which I interviewed both of them over the past few months. So the book contains a a collection of excerpts of Jung's statements, largely from his collected works and from his writings about astrology. You can listen to the past episodes of the podcast for more information about that. The second book I'm giving away is Astrology and the Authentic Self by Demetra George, which is a nice uh, intermediate level astrology book that provides a synthesis of modern and traditional astrology. So that's highly recommended. And then the second one is actually... Uh, a copy of Liz Green's new book that I just did an episode on, which is titled Young's Studies in Astrology, Volume 1, Prophecy, Magic, and the Qualities of Time. So I actually ordered Volume 2 from Amazon, but they sent me uh, a book that has the cover for Volume 2, but when you open it up, it's actually Volume 1. So I got a, I got a misprint, so I'm going to give that away. So whoever wins this one will get a, a rare special edition copy of volume two that has the wrong cover, cover. Uh, that's actually volume one. All right. So those are giveaways this month. Um, to be part of the giveaway, just sign up to become a patron of the show through our page on Patreon, and then you'll be eligible for that in the future. Uh, all right. So transitioning out of news and announcements, we were going to have some early discussions. Usually we have a discussion topic about something that's going on before we get into the forecast. 
uh, what discussion topics. So, so there's one discussion topic that came up over the past month where there's um, a student from a university in the UK and she's doing a, a research project as part of Nick Campion's program where she's researching the concept of mercury retrograde and how the question of how did it become such a popular and increasingly um, almost like mainstream concept that pe- that astrological concept that people are aware of uh, over the past few decades under the premise that it wasn't always like such a popular concept, but it seems like it's become more popular recently. And she actually, in her email to me, because she wanted to do an interview with me to see what I thought about this, which we're supposed to do tomorrow, she cited Nick Campion, who evidently argued that he thought it might be partially a side effect of the rise of traditional astrology from the 1980s forward and its increasing focus on sometimes stark or or sometimes negative delineations or something like that. And that was his speculation, and that was one of the things she was going to look into. So I didn't actually think that that sounded like the answer necessarily to that question. I, I felt like the answer to why Mercury retrogrades become more prominent is that it probably has to do with the the rise of sort of more advanced mainstream astrological columns, especially blogs and other things that are being written online where the astrologers are not just talking about sun signs, but sometimes they are having more ability to have recourse to more general concepts. And Mercury retrograde is one of those things that happens so frequently that it's something that um, astrologers do end up talking about like every few months just because Mercury goes retrograde three times a year. So that seemed like a more likely sort of component to me than than the other thing. What do you guys think, though? You know, is first, do you accept the premise that Mercury retrograde has become more more common or popular as a phenomenon? And if you do, why do you think that is? You go, Austin. You go. Okay. Um, one, do I accept the premise that Mercury retrograde is discussed more often and more publicly? Yes. Right. Yes, I do. Um, as far as the uh, recent rise in the popularity of astrology or the mm, the amount of the public discourse that it takes up, I think Mercury retrograde and Saturn return are like the two – the the two things that people have become aware of and i think one because they're you know it, it's either with mercury retrograde it happens enough that you can you know people you can recognize it um and it's not too it doesn't require well so to say it doesn't require too much nuance it actually does uh, and it's often talked about in a not nuanced way um I, I I would not uh, agree that it is the result of uh, of traditional astrology um, because none of the typical uh, delineations of Mercury retrograde um, have anything to do with most traditional takes on it. Um, it's not like William Lilly was all about that Mercury retrograde. Um, you know what I mean? Sure. And I should pull up that email so I make sure I'm quoting it correctly. I forgot to add also that the other part of my answer was that it's not just the increasing proliferation of astrological columns and the increasing um, sort of popularity of astrology, especially among millennials, which I'm I'm becoming even more and more accepting that that's actually happening. And I keep hearing like I've overheard like three astrology conversations in the coffee shop that I go to over the past week, and I realize that that's anecdotal, but it's really weird to just be sitting there and hear. Like in the distance, some some twenty and thirty year olds like talking about their rising signs, 
or to go to like a Barnes and Noble a few weeks ago and see a couple like reading uh, like a synastry book together for like relationship analysis. Um, and I don't feel like I've seen that until recently. I feel like that's becoming a little bit more common. So the other thing I was going to say is I feel like um, the rise of the importance of technology in our lives may have added a, an additional feature in terms of making Mercury retrograde a little bit more relevant or a little bit more immediately tangible for many of us than it might have been in previous decades as well. I I think that's a great observation. Um, you know, when you're when you've got a bunch of audio devices and video devices and you've got the internet and uh, you've got a phone that you can drop in the toilet, you know, there's there's a lot more there's a lot more room for mercury to play. Whereas if you had a phone in 1985, it plugged into the wall. You could not drop it in the toilet. You could not accidentally step on it. You couldn't lose it. It didn't need internet access. <laughs> you know, there's, right. I think that's, I think that's a really good point, Chris. And that, that was actually my response. I agree too that Mercury retrograde is definitely talked about more often. And I often gauge these things by my, my sisters. I mean, those of you who've listened for a while know I'm from a big family and my younger sisters who are in their late twenties and early thirties. They know about Mercury retrograde and they, and their friends know about it, which surprises me because other than my astrological friends that knew about it when I was that age, nobody talked about it. It wasn't something that just literally the girl on the bus talked about, but they do now. And I think I do disagree with Nicholas Campion. I'm, I'm not sure there isn't a lot in the traditional literature on Mercury retrograde. It's not like it's the number one thing that came out of the medieval or the Hellenistic era. I think it's more got to do with technology. I think that there is more astrology information being disseminated to a wider audience because of the internet and blogs and video and podcast, even podcasts. People are learning astrology now just by listening to podcast information and following videos on YouTube. And so I think there's that sort of general increase um, that's going on. I, I do think it's talked about more and more. Um, and Austin, I agree with you completely. I think the other thing that's talked about a lot more is the Saturn return. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, and I want to read. So the the researcher, the the woman who's doing this, this is working on her MA in cultural astronomy and astrology at the University of Wales, Trinity St. David, and her name is Joanna Martin. So I'm excited. I'm going to interview her. I'm hoping at some point once her research project is finished and she's sort of drawn her own conclusions and done all the research and all the interviews with other astrologers about this topic. But just so I don't misstate what she said Nick's hypothesis was, she said, Nick has hypothesized that the current popularity of Mercury retrograde has its roots in the traditional revival that occurred in the 1980s and argues that until this point, there was little attention paid to Mercury retrograde outside of horary astrology. Most astrology books before the 1980s mentioned planetary retrogrades, but only a little attention was paid to natal retrograde planets, which were mostly just seen as less effective. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to me. I mean, Nick is an incredibly well educated, well researched guy. So a part of me is like, what what is he, what does he have access to? What is he looking at that tells him that? Um, because even within the horary tradition, which you guys would know more about than me. A retrograde planet is important in the nature of a horary chart, but it's not like that really talks a lot about Mercury retrograde either. Specifically. Yeah, I mean, I think I think there's just an issue where, on the one hand, we don't have the perspective he does because he would be older, so he would have seen that transition from that's true. You know, what are astrologers talking about in the 1970s and 80s versus now? Whereas our reference point is just the past 
you know, couple of decades. But at the other hand, on the other hand, there there were probably like overlapping things that were happening. Where yes, tr- there's a revival of traditional astrology in the 1980s and 1990s, but at the same time, that's when the internet and personal computers also came about. And that's also when astrology, like advanced forms of astrology, started to go more mainstream. So you have concepts like Saturn return going mainstream and Mercury retrograde going mainstream, and astrologers not being restricted to just talking about sun sign columns. Because one of the things the internet allowed astrologers to do was start to integrate more advanced forms of astrology into their discussion of general weekly and monthly forecasts. And I think that's probably the primary. Way that it made it more into the mainstream, basically from forecasts totally. just like this one, where if some some astrologers putting out a forecast regularly, whether it's daily or monthly or weekly, they have to talk about what's going on in the astrological weather. And Mercury going retrograde because it happens three times a year is just naturally one of those things that they're going to return to and mention over and over again. And it's that frequency or that repetition of mentioning it that probably. Plays a major role. Totally. And I think Nick's right on the time frame, but I agree with you that it may have been other things going on than just because the traditional revival was happening in the 80s and 90s, but whether that is what linked to this. Yeah. It's really interesting to think about. Austin, you going to add something? No. Um, I think I'm very happy with everything we've said so far. I don't feel like I see any missing pieces. Cool. Okay. Um, let's see other general topics. So one of them, Kelly, you mentioned the new royal baby that was just born this morning. Yes, yes. I, I don't know. I always, I mean, I've probably discussed my obsession with royals in the past. Um, you know, I'm very interested in the astrology of like Harry and Meghan's wedding coming up, which is also in early May. Uh, but yeah, um, William and Kate just had their third baby um, just a few hours ago, which is another boy. Um, and this is a groundbreaking experience from a line of succession thing because between William and Kate having their first baby, George, who is now in the direct line of succession, they had a girl, they had a baby, Charlotte. And between George and Charlotte being born, the rules were changed in England that would allow a female child to inherit the throne above her younger brother. So for the first time in British history, there is an older female sibling who is higher in the line of succession than her younger brother. Prior to this law being changed, which was just in the last few years, um, what would have happened? We've got George and Charlotte and this new baby boy. What would have happened prior to this rule change is the boy would have hopscotched over the girl in the line of succession. So now the natural birth order in the family is preserved as part of the line of succession, which is a new thing coming out of England. So um, that's sort of a little bit of a, you know, history nerd side piece. But yeah, there's a new royal baby. There's going to be a lot talked about it. Um, Jessica Adams, who's another Australian astrologer who's got strong ties to Britain, has already put a little post up on her website. News websites are already talking about astrologers with incredibly far off names that I've never heard of. Um, you know, promising things for the the royal baby. So it's it is a bit of an exciting thing. Um, not necessarily saying you know that the royal family is amazing, but it's just it's an interesting cultural thing that we still have this royal family that has a lot of power in Britain, and there's a new member of that family that's just been born. Yeah, well, and it's cool to see the like traditional stuff happening with it, like that the, there's like an official like town crier that like came out and like announced the birth. 
It's it's phenomenal, the ritual that has obviously been around for such a long time. The town crier comes out to announce the birth. There is a sort of a scroll that is unrolled and displayed out the front of Buckingham Palace. Um, and what I noticed on that scroll is there is a printed section of information and the only piece that was handwritten, it basically says something like, the Duchess of Cambridge was safely delivered of a baby boy at blank time. So they knew they were having a boy in advance because this pre-prepped printed document had boy printed on, and then they've just written the birth time in at 11.01 a.m. Uh, on the 23rd of April, 2018 uh, in London. So it is, It's there's a lot of sort of pomp and circumstance around it, which is, it's interesting to watch. Definitely. Well, and of course, the other thing interesting about that is anytime you throw out like a date and the time, astrologers are immediately going to look at the chart and just see what it has or see what the chart looks like. So Totally. It's one of the reasons I do enjoy working with royal family charts because the time is publicly announced. So it tends to be um, a well-documented thing. Sure. So I'm going to share the chart really quick then for people watching the video version of this podcast. Uh, so the data is April 23rd, 2018 at 11.01 a.m. in Buckingham Palace, uh, United Kingdom. So the chart for the audio people that we're looking at, it has 27 degrees of Cancer rising. Uh, the moon is the ruler of the Ascendant, and it's at 9 degrees of Leo in the second whole sign house. Uh, at 9 degrees of Leo, what? It's separating from a trine with Mercury, it's at 7 degrees of Aries, which is conjunct the degree of the MC at 1 degree of Aries. And the moon is actually applying its next aspect is actually a square with Jupiter at 20 degrees of Scorpio in the fifth whole sign house. Yes. And it's it's on the north node there in Leo as well. Um, the, one of the interesting things from a family signature perspective is that this baby has the Venus conjunct um, Algol aspect, which Algol is quite significant in the royal family because Algol is the degree of Queen Elizabeth's IC. So 24, 26 degrees of Taurus um, is the degree of Queen Elizabeth's IC. Princess Diana and Prince William all have Venus conjunct Algol. So in this latter part of Taurus. Uh, so it's an interesting sort of weird family thread. Um, not every member of the family has it, but Queen Elizabeth, Princess Di, Prince William, and now this third child of Prince William's. Um, yeah. Interesting. So a prominent fixed star showing up in like a family charts. And, and you see that sometimes with families, just like repeating themes that cross generations of having like the same placement or the same signature of some sort. You do. Yeah. Even without it being a royal family. I mean, if you've got charts of your grandparents or your parents and siblings or, you know, nieces and nephews, you do often see it's not always a planet fixed star placement, but you often see themes that repeat. Sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, what do you think, Austin? Do you look at royal charts? No. no. Um, it, the their existence kind of ignore, uh, annoys me. Um, I mean, I guess it's cool if a country wants to have pampered mascots, then that's their business. I love it. I mean, and culturally and historically, you know, I'm from a country that has a more, I don't want to say positive, but has maybe a stronger relationship to the British royal family. I know the British royal family, you know, when you look at history with the US and, and Britain, it's a little bit more fractured. Yeah. My, um, 
my ancestors on both sides left mostly Britain uh, like 300 years ago, and I totally get it. Yeah. Sorry. So they left uh, before the revolutions. Okay. I just I don't like the um uh the 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 hierarchy thing. Um just I I I I don't like personally. I mean the thing the thing that I immediately noticed about this chart was it was almost like a like a twinge of sadness like seeing that that pile up of stuff in Capricorn of uh Mars and Saturn and Pluto all falls in the seventh whole sign house. Uh, especially because a lot of those planets have been stationing recently. Like Pluto is stationary right now. Uh, Saturn just stationed uh, retrograde, I think like five days ago. So it's still practically stationary. And then Mars is there in Capricorn in a, in a day chart in the seventh whole sign house. So it really puts a lot of focus of some of the more challenging planets in the, the sector for relationships in the chart. Uh, but there was a a positive, some positive mitigating things going on there, which I was happy to see, which is like Saturn is in its own domicile, Mars is in its exaltation, and Jupiter is actually overcoming both of those. It's in it's earlier in zodiacal order, so it has a superior sextile over both Saturn and Mars in a day chart. So it's able to make them sort of restrain them and make them a little bit more positive than it they would otherwise be. And that's doubly true for Mars. Uh, in this case, because there's also reception where Mars is actually applying to a, a degree-based sextile with Jupiter. So Mars is at, mm. at 19 Capricorn and it's applying to Jupiter at 20 Scorpio while Jupiter is in Scorpio in Mars's domicile, which means that Mars is actually receiving Jupiter in its home, basically, which creates a greater sense of affinity between those two planets and allows Jupiter to restrain Mars and to sort of clean it up even a little bit more than it would otherwise be. So it still means that with all those planets in the seventh house, that things are going to be localized there in terms of some of the greatest challenges or obstacles, perhaps pertaining to relationships or partnership. But um, there's also some heavy mitigations there, which is a really positive thing to see in terms of it not being the worst case scenario, but instead there's still being some very good things as well. Yeah, I was um, happy to see that you know the moon is not. Um, making an aspect, you know, to all of those Capricorn planets too. It just, I know there is definitely the seventh house emphasis, but it, at least it's not connected to the ruler of the first. So we can have a little bit of of space or there can be other topics that might come in that will be uh, maybe more fulfilling potentially. Yeah, definitely. Uh, with the ruler of the first, sometimes indicating like body and physical vitality so that it's not necessarily something that pertains to that, but instead that seems to be somewhat strong or or decent with the ruler of the ascendant at least not being afflicted, but instead applying to a benefic. It's just this other sector of, you know, the other in the chart or, or other people or mm. close personal relationships with the seventh house. Yeah. I mean, one thing that occurred to me just on that from an interpretive perspective is given the potential diplomatic nature of this person's role later in life, because they do have a public profile for whatever reason. And the overcoming factor there of the Saturn sec, the Jupiter sextile, sorry, whether there may be some skill or strength in helping negotiate with difficult partners or difficult, um, you know, allies that have turned bad, that maybe this could then be something um, that this person could go in and try and use that Jupiter around. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm kind of taking that down the wrong path, but 
Sometimes no, I when like, you, I like that because Mars is also the ruler of the tenth house. It's the ruler of both the the Meridian Midheaven, the MC, yeah. as well as like the tenth whole sign house, and it's there in the seventh house, and it's Mars in a day chart. So that's to some extent the one that the person will struggle with the most on some level is that Mars, but at the same time, being tied to the Midheaven brings it partially in in a career context. Yeah, and I sometimes see that as a manifestation of a planet that is like the out of sect, um, malefic, for instance, or a planet that is otherwise a little bit problematic, particularly when it can be tied to the 10th, is that it's not so much that, so, you know, and this is one of the things we've talked about from an interpretive perspective. Is that a problem that the person deals with or is it a barrier they have to overcome? Or do they then go into a field where they're actually to work, working to overcome problems of that nature, for instance? Um, right. so that, that could be one way this, especially given the, the strong and tight applying Mars Jupiter sextile. Definitely. And, th- and that comes up really prominently. I've, I just had a client, um, contact me in the past couple of days who it was a follow-up to a consultation I had where in the Zodiac releasing periods, she had a major career transition coming up and it was a few years away at this point, but now it's a few years in retrospect, or at least it just ended. And she, um, ended up getting out of one field and going into the medical field, which is like an entirely different field than what she had been in previously. And it was interesting because another prominent client that I had, who I actually used as an example in my book, had the same signature where she had the ruler of the ascendant and ruler of the 10th house in the sixth house of illness. But it wasn't that she herself was ill, but instead her work revolved around you know, that general area of health and illness. Yes. So she wasn't sick herself, but her focus was basically the manifestation of that potentially problematic planet in other people or in other situations. Right. Yeah, Uh, definitely. Yeah. Any thoughts on the chart, Austin, or are you just kind of like, I don't like Royals? Oh, no. I mean, I, I, the first thing I saw was what Chris mentioned was that, boy, that's, um, that's not the easiest seventh house. Um, Jupiter helps a little bit. I, um, think that it's a pretty, mm, moderate, a level of mediation. I don't, I think it might, you know, it might smooth a few things, but that's still, I don't think Jupiter and Scorpio can stand in the way of the combined might of Mars, Pluto, and Saturn. Um, the, uh, it's also interesting to note that, both the Venus and Uranus, and Venus is at 28 degrees Taurus, and Uranus is at 28 degrees Aries. Both of them are configured to the ascendant-descendant axis, which mm-hmm. is 27 right. ca- Cancer, 27 Capricorn. And so, you know, you have that, um, you know, very public 11th house Venus, um, you know, informing the, you know, the, the person's appearance, et cetera, et cetera. And that's, that's good for, you know, what you said earlier, Kelly, potential diplomacy, but Uranus squaring that axis is, um, oh, I don't know that, that, that's pretty <laughs> dramatic. Like, you know, I, I was just like, okay, so, you know, Uranus and Aries, and that's, you know, that's the, um, not the zenith point, but the literal middle midheaven, but not what people refer to as the midheaven is 27 Aries. And Uranus is right there. And then, I don't know, uh, definitely public drama. You know, it's a, a Leo uh, moon conjunct the North Node. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I think it this will pers- be public. We will see it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that Uranus, I, yeah, that's a really good point because that Uranus is so tightly square the ascendant, descendant axis. And that's always a f- an interesting aspect because 
you don't know if it's going to manifest more in the first house or if it's going to manifest more in the seventh house. And, and obviously, it's sometimes it's often a bit of both, but the difference is sometimes striking between, let's say, like Uranus in the first house, where there's something unique or or, or like sometimes weird or something rebellious about the person themselves and their personality that stands out or that they stand out in a unique way as a result of that versus Uranus in the seventh house. And there's something unique or or kind of weird or out of the ordinary about the person's relationships in some way. And Uranus being there sort of between those two and, and squaring both of those angles brings an interesting component to both the, the personality as well as the person's relationships. Yeah, and it destabilizes both. Yes. Right. And yeah. stability is not necessarily good and instability bad. Um, but you know, you do have that Uranian quick shift, um, a sudden change of state and situation uh thing applied to both the first and seventh there. Absolutely. It sure. would certainly talk about um the the variety factor or the chopping and changing that there's a lot more movement which is we're talking about a cardinal axis squared by uranus within a degree so this wouldn't be someone necessarily that you might say settles down early into a stable relationship that is long lasting <laughs> no no <laughs> we would give a firm no there um yeah yeah all right. Well, we don't have to dwell on this too long, but it's an interesting chart to look at. It's interesting because it's like I had that, you know, all of us maybe, or at least my eye was first drawn to where that Mars Saturn Pluto conjunction fell in the chart and it falling in the seventh whole sign house. But it's interesting because, you know, whoever is born at this time is going to have that lineup of planets fall somewhere in the chart. So it's not like there's a better, really, or a worse place to have it. Um, but you're going to have it somewhere, and it's going to tend to focalize, you know, some of the challenges that the person might experience in life in a particular area of of the chart. Uh, so it's an interesting question to think about for you know charts that are just coming into existence right now. It's a really great point, Chris. Um, anyone born, you know, at the moment, right through until mid-May, when you're on, uh, sorry, Mars leaves uh, Cap, is going to have this triple lineup. And it just depends on the time of day as to which house and which part of the chart it's going to be, which part of the life it's going to have most impact on. Right. And have you guys noticed, I've been noticing with Saturn stationing over the past week, a lot of people who are having their Saturn returns right now who have Saturn in the early degrees of Capricorn, like it's been it's been hitting them. And it's been interesting seeing that, like a planetary station as an intensification of the planet uh, at that time and intensifying uh, and and you know again focaling or, or creating a focal point for whatever that transit is about. In that case, it's the Saturn return. Um, have you guys noticed that as well with the station over the past week? I haven't noticed exactly that, but in general, the um, you know a station making a or uh, indicating a key point, sometimes a turning point. Um, in an ongoing story, which is told by you know, which is told by that that transiting planet, is something you know I've seen hundreds of times. Yeah, uh, it's just been interesting seeing some of the Saturn return stories come to a head sometimes unexpectedly during those times, like the musician uh, who died just a few days ago. Oh uh, like yeah, Vici. Yeah. Uh, who was going through his first Saturn return, and he had Saturn around those early degrees of Capricorn, and it was like in a 
T-square with like Jupiter and Mercury and Neptune and a few other planets. So anyway, um, let's move on to something else. I think those are all of the like pre-show discussions that I had lined up. Uh, should we jump right into the forecast? Let's do it. There's yeah. a lot to talk about this month. Oh, there's fun stuff, maybe. Maybe okay. not fun. <laughs> all right. Uh, so let's start out at the beginning of May, May 1st. Um, what do we open with? Because the, the notes that I wrote down were like, there's not there's nothing. Specific th- there's not specific things <laughs> going nothing. on until a little bit later in the month, right? Yeah. I mean, the first aspect that I can see, like there's literally no planetary aspects. Like the moon will obviously be doing its thing, but f- until the 6th of May when we have the sun sextile Neptune. Um, I don't necessarily think that that's the main signature of May, but it's just the first time we have some sort of planet planet that's not the moon. Um, I don't know. I don't know about you, Austin, but I almost feel like we can just skip right to the middle of the month. Um, there's one thing I, on the 13th that I would talk about, but do you have anything before then? No, and I think that the uh, – but I, I guess I think that the lack of action provides its own quality and that maybe we could – you know, we people might enjoy – not having new dramatic stuff happening. <laughs> right? And they have a chance to catch their breath right. before. <laughs> because we will have just done the Mars-Pluto conjunction and the Mars-ruled Scorpio moon and all of that at the end of April. And so it's kind of nice. There's like nothing new on the plate, really, for you know yeah. most of the first week of May, which is exactly what I would like to be served is nothing. <laughs> yeah. And, and I think that's a really important point because even though there's not a lot that goes exact in the first part of May, it's like we are coming off of some some pretty big stuff. I mean, that Scorpio full moon that you mentioned just happens at the end of April on like April 29th. Um, Saturn stationed retrograde here relatively recently. Pluto stationed retrograde relatively recently with Mars conjoining it uh, around that time in, in Capricorn. So it's Mercury like pe- square Saturn in that last week of April too. So yeah. Finally. Yeah. That was like the longest Mercury retrograde <laughs> ever because it was like, go just like grinding back and forth over all of those Capricorn planets in the square. It was really interesting to watch like the difference between a Mercury retrograde where it's like, you know, trining Jupiter and, and sextiling Venus versus Mercury stationing retrograde, like passing a square and then with Saturn and Mars and then retrograding backwards and squaring them again and then stationing and then going back over them again a third time. Uh, It's been interesting to say the least. It's been um, relentless. Relentless. That is the word, Austin, isn't it? It has been unending. The pressure has not lifted. No, no. There was... um... Yeah, I think about, ooh, was it last month or maybe even the month before where we were discussing this? And we were talking about it uh, like a marathon, but like a marathon where you were going to be expected to sprint for most of the time. Yes. <laughs> and I, I think that uh, experientially, that was uh, that was pretty bang on. So I'd be like, now now I get to you know have a water break, right? And yeah. it's like, no. It's half time. No. Yeah. You know, you know, somebody might spritz you from the sidelines, but there was no like, okay, let's take it easy for a couple of days. Yeah. So that's really the the start of May, isn't it? Is this taking it easy? The plate is empty just for a moment. Or at least it's just, it's not getting filled with more stuff. You know, there's, um, you know, we got served quite a bit over the last month and a half 
And so, you know, I'll still be mm, gnawing on the bones of April for the, <laughs> for the first week of May. Um, but it's, it, I think it's a, a chance to re, re-moderate your pace, which is something I, I associate very strongly with Taurus in general is figuring out what is, uh, what is a, what is, what is, what pace is sustainable, right? Mm. Which isn't the same thing as slow. Um, but there's that, you know, there's that Venusian question of, of balance, right? Like, so, okay, the balance between effort and repose. Hmm. It's definitely, I've noticed, not that I'm sort of necessarily done yet, but I have noticed a change of pace since the sun moved into Taurus, just coming out of that sign base square from all the Capricorn planets. But we've still got that measured energy, if you like. But that's, that's one of the gifts of Taurus, I think, is, I like the word sustainable, Austin. What what can be maintained today and tomorrow and into next week? And uh, that steadiness, I guess. So, I mean, the first thing that I sort of um, have got my eye on is the Mercury-Uranus conjunction on um, around the 13th of May, which is almost like a bit of a, a last message or a last something from Uranus in Aries before this is sort of the last other planet trigger to Uranus before it changes signs. Um, so that, that's sort of the start of what I think is the week in May, which is, um, the week starting the 14th or from the 13th, which is when we're going to get most of our astrological events happening. Yeah. Oh, and the I moon is there too. I didn't realize mm-hmm. that Chris. It's yeah. like the moon, the moon catches up with Mercury when it, as it's conjoining Uranus at 29 Aries. And the other thing that's really crucial is that Mercury has just completed the final square, the third square, I believe, with Mars, at, at, which is now at 28 Capricorn. Because that's the weird thing, of course, that everyone who's been paying attention to the Uranus ingress knows when it first goes into Taurus is that it switches signs and moves into Taurus at this, basically the same time that Mars switches signs and moves into Aquarius. So you get this weird double ingress and this square between Mars and Uranus that I'm sure we'll talk about later. But one of the sort of consequent things of that is that Mercury squares Uranus or or squares Mars right before it conjoins Uranus, uh, right around uh, what it looks like the like the 27th or or or, sorry not the 27th around the 11th, 12th, and 13th. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've got Mercury square Mars on the 12th and then Mercury conjunct Uranus on the 13th. They will be Eastern times, uh, but it's that weekend basically. Yeah. Um, So that seems to pack a lot of action, like having Mercury hit Uranus would be notable in and of itself, but having Mars um, squaring those two at the same time and having the moon coming up and then conjoining those planets in late Aries uh, at the same time is pretty notable. Yeah, it's one last download from uh, one last yeah one last download from Uranus and Aries. It's Mercury handing the microphone to Uranus just before the ingress, which is interesting. Yeah, I, that's what, that's the, I get, that's a beautiful image. Austin is the idea of Mercury handing Uranus the microphone. What do you want to say from this point? Um, last gasp or something. Yeah. yeah. Uranus like, well, you know, I've really enjoyed my time here in Aries. I've destabilized a lot of governments. Um, right. 
uh, people in general distrust authority far more than they did. You know, I'm really proud of my work here. I hope you realize that you are uh, a sovereign and divine being and that you have the freedom to make whatever choices you like, et cetera, et cetera. Right, which was not the lesson that Pluto gave everyone while simultaneously squaring it over the past decade. Yeah, they they got into a bit of an argument. You know, I might not have, you know, Uranus, like, you know, I might not have achieved everything I hoped for, but, um, you know, I gave Pluto a black eye. And, uh, you know, I think when we look at the number of punches landed, I did pretty well, even if I didn't win the decision. Yeah, uh, it, <laughs> well, it'll be really interesting to see. Will we live live to see it? I guess we will at some point when Uranus gets to the other square where it's in the superior position overcoming Pluto. And if the you know similar situation comes up, but then the tables get reversed where the, the more revolutionary parts represented by Uranus get the upper hand and kind of win the battle. Uh, we, what were like, like in like what, 40 years or something like that? Uh, I don't know that we're going to get there. I mean, because it might be a little longer than oh right because um, it's uh, tracking it's not actually exact because it's not going to stay fixed uh so how long would that be well i think brian is actually saying 2045 our research assistant in the chat box which is great <laughs> um but even i mean the the, the next thing that's going to happen will be the opposition yeah the, that, right. the opposition yeah. is in 2045 and so then right. it's going to be like another Got it. 40 30 40 years after that when we get the next square so yeah, we might do no, it. I, I'm, I'm going to have to, you know, my um, dreams of Taoist immortality and unnatural lifespan are going to, I think, have to come true to get there. But, you know, I'm working on making them come true. So <laughs> I think, we'll I definitely like that, get the opposition. That, that was one of the, like, the first like weird lessons that I had to learn as an astrologer when I first bought an ephemeris is like seeing all these cool transits like way off in the future that you'll never get to experience. It's like a weird process learning that or having that realization at some point when you first start learning astrology all right it's very uh, cool um uh, and yeah. sp speaking of that actually kelly i've had like a like a dozen people say that after hearing us uh chiding people about not having an ephemeris on our progressions episode that like a bunch of people went out and bought ephemerises so i think we <laughs> i think we were successful in in that in guilting people into it it is honestly an essential tool it doesn't matter what kind of astrology you're practicing or what techniques you're doing. You need to know where the planets are. And it becomes like a, I mean, it, I left it at home when I went to a conference recently by mistake. I cleaned my office and then packed my bag, which was my mistake. And um, the ephemeris was back on the shelf. And yeah, it's it's so critical. Uh, so that's good. I'm pleased to hear. I'm pleased Definitely. to hear that. Um, so we get the last message of Uranus, uh, in Aries. I mean, Uranus is going to come back to Aries for a few months, late 2018, early 2019. There'll be other little transits and things that happen then, but it is interesting just in the context of this mid-May period. Um, yeah, the Mercury square Mars, then Uranus. So that's, that's a pretty, um, intellectually stimulated slash volatile weekend, May 23rd, May 12 and 13. Right. Well, well, and that was one of that's one of the interesting things about how ancient authors always treated Mercury is that Mercury was always the planet that would typically amplify whatever other planets it was with. At least traditionally, that that was part of its role was amplifying them uh, to some extent, whatever their natural tendency is. So, 
is interesting then seeing that with something like Uranus, where what does an amplified Uranus look like as it's getting ready to to depart the sign that it's been in for the greater part of a decade? And it is probably like Austin said, which is like, you know, one last hurrah uh, before heading out of the sign. Yes. Which is interesting because then we do get the ingress and we get the Mars square Uranus, which is building on this weekend, but technically happens once both Mars, Mars and Uranus have changed signs, Mars into Aquarius, Uranus into Taurus. Um, and I've got May 16 for that. And then I think that it's so interesting to me that we get this dramatic square from Mars to Uranus as it's just not even 24 hours in the new sign. That's almost like a first broadcast. You know, what does Uranus in Taurus want to say? And we're getting some immediate sense or expression of that in a very dramatic, volatile way because it's coming via a Mars square. And I know you've got your eye on this aspect too, Austin. Oh, yeah. I think everyone does. Um, so, go ahead, Chris. Uh, just the date. So this is May 15th. We're talking about uh, the new moon in Taurus has just taken place at 24 Taurus, uh, I think on this date or a few a little bit before. Uh, and Uranus has just ingressed into Taurus on May 15th. And then a few hours later, literally just hours later, uh, Mars goes into into Aquarius and it's firmly there by uh, the fifteenth, the end of the fifteenth, or definitely by the sixteenth. Yeah, well, so there's there's a lot here. Um, first, of course, we have Uranus entering the sign that it's going to spend most of the next seven years in. We get we get a brief retreat at the end of 2018 and the first quarter, then the first two months of 2019. But Uranus is basically going to be in Taurus for, you know, until the middle of the next decade. And so when we're looking at Uranus, we're looking at, a, you know, the, the cycle of revolutions and disruptions. Um, you know, and I think that, that was all very clear with, when Uranus was in during the time that Uranus has been in Aries. But, you know, and the sign that Uranus is in will tell us about what it would like to disrupt. Um, or, you know, I, I would say Uranus also, you know, Uranus brings breakdowns and breakthroughs to the area that it's, that it's visiting. Um, and so, you know, on that day, we have, you know, the, the first, how should we say, you know, the, that is the introduction to that. And as I, I believe both of you said or alluded to, uh, Mars being perfectly square, uh, to Uranus on that day. Um, it certainly, it, it will certainly make clear what Uranus would like to disrupt. Mars also likes disrupting things. And what's interesting about Mars is that Mars too is, Mars's ingress into Aquarius is also a, uh, portentous, uh, event. It, it speaks to the future, not a seven year future, but it speaks to the astrology of virtually the entire third quarter of 2018. Um, uh, because Mars, because the first decan of, of Aquarius, where the south node is right now, is where Mars is going to station retrograde. And so there's a lot of like, you know, there's a lot of both. Ooh, how should we say medium term this year as well as longer term next seven years stuff configured right there, you know, configured right there in the middle of May. Right. Yeah. And that's something you had said in our pre-show chat, Austin, which was 
you know, this is really where we get a sense of what the next few months are going to be about, because it's not just Mars changing signs. It's not a regular change of signs by Mars. Mars is moving into the sign. It's going to spend five months in Aquarius for the rest of this year. And the bulk of that time is actually spent in that first decan or those first 10 degrees of Aquarius. So we're getting an activation or a, a stirring up of zodiacal territory and whatever associated life events or topics for each of us individually and collectively that is now being stirred, that is just going to continue to be shaken and twisted and turned upside down right through until the end of August. Right. And and this is the first square between Mars and Uranus, but it's the first of three. And that's part of the reason yeah. why it characterizes the next quarter, basically, because that's the opening, the first square, and we're going to get two more over the course of the next few months, which is unique and doesn't usually happen because Mars is going to go retrograde in early Aquarius and then start moving backwards. And um, the other point that Austin had made was that it's, it is this th- there's three squares to Uranus, but there's also three conjunctions to the South node from Mars in early Aquarius. Cause the South node is there too. So all of those features, Mars, Uranus, and the South node, whether it's modern or traditional or what have you, each of those features has a destabilizing quality. They have a stirring up. I mean, you know, in, when I learned modern astrology, which was the first introduction to astrology, I learned that Mars and Uranus were like the higher and, oh no, Mars and Pluto, I guess, but sorry, I beg your pardon. Let me rephrase. Mars and um, Pluto are often linked together in modern astrology, but traditionally the nature of Mars has a little bit more of that destabilizing, unpredictable energy of Uranus. Mercury has a bit of it too. Um, so it's interesting that three things to do with destabilization are working so tightly together in the next few months. Yeah, let, let's talk about that and break that down a little bit because that was an interesting point that Austin first made and then you brought it up again, which is that Mars can have a de- you know destabilization is one of like our primary keywords and revolution is one of our primary keywords for Uranus or instability but Mars also has a, a destabilizing influence and and part of the reason for that is cuz it Mars one of its primary core underlying or or overarching keywords is um severing things or separating things like it, it cuts things apart or, or can cut things in two or break them up and um that can sometimes be necessary, but oftentimes subjectively, when you have something severed in your life or cut up or broken apart, that can be experienced in, in a negative sense, like uh, the severing or separating from of a relationship. So like if you got a divorce or a severing or a separation from your job, and so you get fired or something like that. Um, so you know, when you're bringing that like severing and separating thing together with Uranus, uh, you get uh, a sort of you know expanding of both of those significations, and that you get an even bigger destabilization, or you get an unexpected severing or an unexpected separation that uh, comes up, and they kind of magnify each other in that way. Yeah, well, I, I was you're um, we're on the same page. I was thinking exactly the same thing, and also that Uranus separates. You know, you're, um, it yeah. destabilizes, but it also it separates. Um, Uranus can have um, an isolating effect, which can be useful. Like, I don't want to hang out with you guys anymore. You're, you know, you're preventing your, uh, <laughs> uh, your, how should we say, it? you're uh, impeding my freedom, right? Uranus seeks 
uh, separation socially so as to um, uh, create the, a situation of freedom, right? Um, and when we think of uh, when we think of archetypally Uranian figures, they're often isolated. Like the mad scientist is not an integrated part of the community, but stands outside of the community. Right. Well, it's like I don't need your approval, and I'm going to go do my own thing, and that that's Uranus. Whereas Mars is like, you know, gives you the middle finger and tells you to go f yourself, and that's why it ends up being sort of separate sometimes from the group because it's a a disrupt. It, it not disruptive isn't the word I want to use. It's disruptive in an antagonistic type sense, where because it severs and separates as its natural function, that sometimes. Um, Makes it so that it 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 can't like cohere or it can't unify with like other people, and therefore it ends up being standing more on its own. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally, I always think about the dryness. The nature of Mars is that extreme dryness, which which is separative. It pulls apart. You know, we I think we've talked about this before, and yeah, it's hard for dry things to cohere to bond. That's not the point of dry things, and. I think you've made a good point, both of you, around the cutting and the severing and the separating. And sometimes that can be, you know, sad or something is cut away that you don't want to be cut away. But the flip side of that could be that there may be a situation with where if you, the situation that could be causing a lot of stress or a lot of drama and choosing to step back or remove yourself to put some space there can be a productive way of managing that situation with these types um, of influences. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I mean, yeah. what what is this setting us up for though, if this is like the first of three squares? Like what does a sequence of Mars Uranus squares look like? Is that like an ongoing sort of series of events for some people if this is hitting crucial parts of their chart where there's going to be this you know in some instances maybe like an intense desire or need or push to sort of I don't think individuate is like the right term because that has like other connotations but to um separate oneself unexpectedly from groups or from some part of the life in a way that might feel disruptive so that for some people that's going to be a conscious choice but for other people it might be something that happens in their environment that that pushes them in that direction somewhat unexpectedly i mean is this setting up a sequence or are we looking at more at like isolated events well um go ahead yeah you go austin yeah for some people it's definitely going to be a sequence um you know uh, sometimes with with cycles like this where you have you know one of three the you know the first one is the introduction the middle one is the you know that sort of i don't know you know the the heart of the story where the uh, the conflicts have developed and there's tension there's dramatic narrative tension <laughs> um and then the third is you know the it often marks the conclusion or outcome of that um, especially if, you know, if Mars is perfected, for example, or if this is happening on top of, um, uh, on, on, on top of, you know, natal, natal planets. I also think with this, one of the things you're going to see, so you're, so Mars is action, right? And Uranus is like a quick change. And so like, oh, you know, now we need to do this, you know, we need, because the situation has changed, we better do this really fast in order to adapt to it. And then the situation might change again. And then the story might change a third time. Um, and so 
Mm, you know, one of the things I get from thinking about this is, uh, how should we say, to not if, if this ends up if this sequence ends up describing one of your stories, um, to not assume that the first call to action. Um, is going to be, is going to characterize the way things are going to go, right? Cause whenever you have a, a retrograde planet like Mars, and this is setting up the retrograde, um, you have, uh, you know, a retro, retrograde stories are crooked and circumambulatory. They spiral rather than going in a straight line. And so, you know, remembering that if this presents a challenge that, the you know the the if it looks like a straight line now um it's probably not going to end up being one and you know to take that i, I don't know just one one example i see is just like oh my god this happened we've got to do this and you know running in a panic you know acting in a panic in one direction and then it turns out that you actually ran in the wrong direction and then that switches you're like oh no i need to go this way oh no i need to go that way um you know cuz this is very uh, with Mars, there's always the potential for uh, being over-adrenalized and thinking tactically but not strategically. That makes sense? Does that make sense, Kelly? Yeah, it does. Because what you're alluding to there is the idea that you're thinking about the tactics in the moment or in the short term, but you're not considering how that feeds into the larger strategy or the maybe the bigger picture or the, you know, it's the battle versus the war kind of analogy, I guess. Yeah. Um, well, and it's more like impulsive or instinctual. Like, what is your instinctual response to this stimulus or this situation that you've been thrown in? Not what is your like stepping outside of it and and looking at it from a bird's eye view, but just like initial impulse. Totally. And they're the two words that I kept thinking as you were talking, Austin. Is the difference between, or you know, the idea of operating from impulse or impulsively, which can be a bit of a reaction, uh, and then sometimes operating on instinct which can be a, like a genuine responsiveness. But yeah, I think the point you make around making a major decision mid-May is only the first act in what's going to be a three-act play. So don't think that whatever happens then is going to be the resolution or the outcome because we get a second activation of this Mars-Uranus. Um, that's going to be in the first half of August is the second square with Mars retrograde square Uranus. And the third square doesn't actually happen until the second half of September. So it's quite a long lead time. The first square is happening mid-May. And I think this is the point, maybe Austin, that you were when we were having our pre-show chat. You're like, it's not just about what's happening in May, but it's about how that sets up what we're going to experience through the middle of the year. And one thing, you know, the idea of operating on instinct, it's one of the things that I find can be a positive thing with Mars Uranus stuff is that sometimes when we do get into that place of like instant clarity or choice in our mind, it's very genuine and it's very authentic. We've somehow circumvented our overly analytical worry part of our mind. We kind of go, oh, this is how I need to tackle this situation it's just a bit of a caution because we are coming into the Mars retrograde loop that if that may be how you think you need to deal with it mid-May, but let's maybe pause before we put that plan into action or we take a couple of steps before doing the final piece to see how this uh, moving situation continues to unfold. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all that is good advice, but then at the same time, I'm realizing like Uranus changing signs and if that's going into a prominent position in somebody's chart, 
like there may be sudden radical change in some people's lives that sets in like very soon after that ingress and that may not be That is true. Yeah, you may like, not have the the this the luxury of taking time. Right. 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 But the it's, you, if, I, yeah, I think what this Mars the Mars retrograde being configured to it suggests is so if Uranus is a a cha- you know a swift change of circumstance in some area of the life um in order to adapt to a changed circumstance um you know part of that is how you know what is your plan of action what is your you know what are what are your actions your marsness how do you adapt mars to that right and then it's worth noting that or, that mars is in such a position that it's going to take a while, right? Mars is setting up for a, a, a slow movement and then a retreat and then a third hit. And so part of what that's saying is, um, you know, your first battle plan is probably not going to be the right one. It's going to take some time to uh, to get it figured out. And it's worth noting that the Venus retrograde, which be, uh, happens at the beginning of the fourth quarter of the year, is also very tightly configured to Uranus. And so it's almost mm. we one way to look at it is that Mars and Venus are kind of going to be trying to figure out how or going to be spending a lot of time how to adapt to you know different areas of life to this change. And the one the nature of change with Uranus coming into a fixed sign. I remember this when Uranus was in Aquarius uh going back a few years the last time Uranus was in another fixed sign. I remember thinking how dramatic experiences clients would have when they were having Uranus transits because the nature of Uranus is to stir things up, to encourage you to look for options that give you more freedom, but the nature of a fixed sign is to resist the need to make a change for as long as possible. And I kept coming back to this phrase about it's better to bend a little than it is to break. And that's something that keeps coming up for me as I think about Uranus coming into fixed signs is that a rigid part of our charts or our lives or, you know, rigid part of our symbolism is being asked to adapt and move more quickly than it really wants to. Um, but, you know, so, you know, the big change can be the break. And sometimes that happens as a point of resist of having resisted smaller changes, which might be about the bending part, um, just to use that symbolism of bending versus breaking. And, you know, whether it's something that breaks open from an awareness perspective or some sort of structural thing externally kind of breaks or shifts in a way that is a permanent change. Um, that may be the larger set of this piece with Uranus changing signs. And the Mars component could be, you know, what do we each need to do about that, for instance? Yeah, I 100% agree. Um, so another angle on this that I think is worth discussing is that hold on really quickly if you're going to change no no, no subjects, i'm going to change wanna... um I'm, I'm going to continue talking about uranus and mars okay i was just going to say it's really funny because we're all used to talking about this in a consultation setting and so you guys are talking very philosophically about like how to deal with changes and how to plan stuff out and i'm just imagining some of the scenarios where somebody's like no look my my house is literally on fire right now yeah. after the ingress takes place or they're like my cat was electrocuted or something like that, like where they have like a very literal, literal like man- manifestation that's like a, like a one-time thing that just like suddenly changes or disrupts their life. And while in some instances, there's going to be people where 
they're going to be going through broader changes or it's going to be like an ongoing thing for other people. It's sometimes like just sudden unexpected disruption that happens in some localized part of the life. Yeah. Well, and I think that um, you can bridge that, bridge those two angles very easily. So, you know, one thing, for example, could be, oh, you're getting evicted at the end of, at the end of May, right? You find out on the 15th, you have to live somewhere else or you're getting foreclosed on or whatever. And that is, you know, that's a big, very physical, literal thing. But at the same time, you know, and you're going to have an adrenal response to that because that's shelter, but not just running to the first open door. Or if you don't have a lot of options, you know, finding a lily pad, but not, you know, uh, not not getting scared into committing to a situation that'll sour uh, over the uh, over the course of the Mars retrograde. You know, um, you might lose stability, but then you have to, you know, you have to find another place to be. And so, you know, if you're going to do that, locking yourself into something while things are while the changes are still unfolding is unwise, right? And I mean, if your cat dies, totally, your cat yeah. dies. There's not a whole lot of, um, you know, that, that's not that's not going to be, uh, you know, a three month long process or a four month long process. No. But you know, I, I, a lot of time. Go ahead. Well, it, the cat itself dying is not going to be a three month long process. That if, the, if your cat gets electrocuted, and I will cry for you because I would cry if that happened to me. Um, you know, if there is the fire, if the house is on fire, you will operate from instinct. You will just operate without thinking. And there's no doubt about that. But if your cat dies, the larger story that that plays into is what kind of a, a different life do you have without the demands of a daily pet, for instance, or, you know, how that shifts your thinking. Maybe that opens an opportunity that is short term that you wouldn't have had otherwise. Not that I want to be too Pollyanna about it, but I think even an event that happens around the, like even an immediate um, upheaval or chaotic event that happens in this mid-month is going to play out in changes in circumstances or changes in mindset. That means you you kind of settle into or choose for yourself a different way by the time this sort of all unfolds. And I love that what you're talking, Austin, about the short term And you're right, Chris, this is all, you know, obviously our background is talking to people all the time about this. And one of the things I often say to people when we've got high Uranus activity is think short term, not long term. Figure out what is going to get you through the next two to four months and then reassess at that point because we will have so many um, other shifts that come in that any decision you make now will not be the right decision 12 months from now. So give yourself give yourself the flexibility to re-choose again. Down the yeah, it's um, you know one w- uh, one phrase for that sort of strategy is um, option. You know, uh, prioritizing optionality. So wherever you go next, you have two or three possible moves rather than you know backing yourself into a corner. So that if things change again, you you know you you have only one more option or no options. Um, so what I was going to say um, that Uranus and the south node have in common because the the south node uh mm-hmm. is going to be mars is going to be intersecting with the south node for months and months and that's sort of in the in the shadowy background of this is that both uranus and the south node have the quality of bringing what was latent um into manifestation mm. um you know one of my, one of the one of my favorite things that i've heard of that somebody said about uranus was something rick levine said to me years ago and he said that Uranus makes it impossible to repress anything. It's hard to like keep things, you know, in their boxes. And the South Node also has uh, has some quality of that. The South Node will often 
bring up old stuff. You know, it brings the poison to the surface sometimes. And so, you know, I think one thing we'll see is on both the collective and individual level is a sudden and, you know, Mars certainly gets things moving is we'll, we'll see things that were, you know, they've been there for a long time, but they weren't necessarily active. Um, you know, things rise to the surface. Um, I'm, I'm, I have a hard time not seeing this, uh, uh, in the, um, economic forecast for the United States. There, there's a lot of, um, yeah. Um, I, I, I think that the cycle will correspond with, um, economic events. Yeah, I think the South Node piece is interesting. And the only, I think you've done a beautiful job there, Austin. The only thing I wanted to throw in was the timing. Uh, Just that this is also prepping or setting us up for the eclipse at the end of July, which is just another one of those windows where we'll be coming back to um, these situations because, yeah, the South Node, it's going to be interesting. I like what you said about how they both bring latent things to light. Um, it's like the buried stuff inside us or inside society that doesn't get a look in sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be, uh, yeah, I'm kind of, I'm, I don't know. You, Cause you, Austin, if I, I don't want to necessarily talk about the two of us personally, but you know, you and I straddle late degree of cardinal versus early degree of fixed with some of the stuff in mm-hmm. our chart and it's going to be interesting, you know, as to how that plays out. And that's a clue to listeners as well. If you do have late degrees of cardinal, early degrees of fixed, you know, this Uranus transition um, and then this Mars interplay with the South Node. I mean, that they're the degrees in the Zodiac, aren't they, that are being hit? Yeah, I've got, my, uh, I've got the ruler of my fourth at two degrees of Aquarius. And so I, have no, I already know that this is going to be stuff about living situation. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. So you're so you're anticipating maybe having to maybe move or take a short-term placement somewhere? Yes. May um there's also um actually just uh, within the last couple of days the possibility of maybe buying a, a little piece of land, um maybe moving, maybe not. You know, like the, they're both positive, both the, you know, sudden acquisition uh, of of living space as well as sudden disappearance of living space. Both of those options I can see from here um, over the next quarter. Yeah, that's super interesting. So that can be how like people are listening and thinking, oh my God, that is me. Yeah, it's because one thing I like about Uranus triggers is I like what it brings to the surface. It's that wild thing that you're like, I didn't think I was ready for this for another four or five years, but actually some opportunities coming up now can we do it in a way that's going to be sustainable or manageable, yeah. I guess? Could could we do that, run through that really quickly? Like, you know, Uranus going into each of the houses and just like throw out a few keywords for like what that might coincide with. I mean, like Uranus going into the fourth house sounds is like a, you know, sudden destabilization of like your living situation or your home, right? That's what you guys were just talking about. Yeah. Well, Austin was saying that Uranus is going to trigger. Well, Austin was saying the ruler of his fourth is at two Aquarius. So with the Uranus activation, we were talking about how this pattern is triggering late cardinal and early fixed placements in the chart specifically um, over the next few months. Okay. 
And um, you you guys are both doing webinars on this actually pretty yeah, soon. Yeah, this right? is I'm gonna yes. we're probably gonna do this for about an, an hour. I think we're gonna do that in our webinars. Okay, well let's not do that then. <laughs> uh so also sorry, that will that. probably take us about another forty minutes to do each of the houses because a couple of words for each of us three will not be thirty seconds, probably. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No problem. Uh so so this is obviously Sorry, Brian. <laughs> One Brian of our really excited. live patrons who's in the audience says, Brian Steppy, who's been helping us with them, some of the other statements, says it's going through his ninth house. So you'll have to attend Austin's Well, let, let's do a teaser. Too, let's do a teaser. Webinar. Let's do just a teaser? do Brian because yeah. he's been very helpful. Yeah. Just one house? You guys okay, <laughs> okay. with that? Totally. Totally. Well, I mean, ironically, I think we actually when uh, – uh, Adam, Summer, and Eugenia, when we talked about Uranus and Taurus, I think we actually did an example of somebody with it going through their ninth house. So, so yeah, why don't anyway, you just, just change the chart, Chris, to a Virgo rising, which will, or yeah, Virgo, will that throw the Taurus in the ninth? Just so we just on the, yeah, on the display. And then we can just pretend. There we go. Beautiful. Okay. So let's do it. So quick keywords for like Uranus. Ninth house transit. Uh, shake up in one's belief system. A Definitely. sudden, a sudden opportunity to travel for work or pleasure internationally. Uh, and an an eccentric teacher who disrupts your life. <laughs> Brilliant! <laughs> I love this. This is like astrology on the twenty questions. Um, right. An eccentric teacher, an unexpected or, you know, an, an out of the blue opportunity to teach or present or even publish one's writing or wisdom yeah. stuff. Um, a, uh, uh, a reversal um, in regard to one's relationship to higher education. The university professor mm. leaves their post suddenly or someone uh, who's never really seen much value in higher education suddenly decides later in life that they want to get on the road to um to obtaining a phd that's fantastic i like the sudden bit so you change your opinion about it you change your point of view yeah definitely um all right let's cut it off there because we need to go through all of them really quickly i mean i think but uh, well i I mean we can i mean but um the other thing i would say with uranus changing like an outer planet changing signs like this it's how it changes the house it's leaving too. So the unexpected upheaval around finance or around income or a tax matter settling down or being resolved to the point that it becomes more manageable. Because it's moving out of his eighth house? Correct. Okay. Yeah. so Because that, that's a longer you, eight-year trend that's ending. That I, so I would talk about that too. So, so universally, like everyone should think about like what whole sign house Uranus has been transiting through over the course of the past decade since – what, 2010, 2011? 2010 was the first ingress, I think, into Aries. Okay. And then that coming to an end, whatever that phase of your life has been of Uranus going through that house or that sector of your chart and the part of your life that that pertains to, and then Uranus moving into this new area of your life and what whole sign house it's moving into as being an area of your life that you could experience change or disruption or uh, some of the other keywords that we've been using here today. All right. Um, so that's obviously like the big thing that happens this month. And it's right in the middle of the month, right around the time of the new moon in Taurus on the 15th. Um, right before that, on the 13th, we had Mercury uh, ingresses into Taurus, which is nice because then it's finally fully out of its 
uh, retrograde cycle that it had been going through in Aries for most of this month, for April. Well, um, actually, on the Mercury piece, this is an interesting feature for May. Mercury's been in Aries since early March. And right. in May, Mercury goes through Taurus in two weeks. So Mercury actually ingresses into two new signs in May. Mercury goes into Taurus on the 13th, and by the 29th of May, it's, it's going into Gemini. So it's just an interesting observation that for nearly two months, we've had Mercury just in Aries, really deep diving, you know, Aries stuff. And now Mercury is obviously moving quite quickly and back up to boot scooting through the sky. So we do get more movement um, from Mercury. Yeah, definitely. So Mercury is really cruising because by the time it gets into, at the end of May, it gets into Gemini. And then not too long after that, it conjoins the sun in early June. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's always when Mercury is moving the, the fastest is when it's around the mm-hmm. conjunction with the sun. Um, as a side note, uh, Kelly, can you use the term boot scooting more often in the podcast? <laughs> I really enjoyed that. I tend to – sorry, no, I have no, I, such weird I like it. Phrase. I like it. I think it's it, hilarious. It, I like I, – even as a kid, I used to say I was brooming the floor, not sweeping. And hanger coats or coat hangers, I always used to say – I don't even now know what it's supposed to be, if it's a coat hanger or a hanger coat, but I used to use whatever the odd one was. Yeah, boot scooting along when Mercury's going really quickly. It'll be like two degrees a day. Um, that's fast. Um, Definitely. And before we move on to the, the rest of the month, basically, I forgot uh, the election for this month, the auspicious oh, election yes. that was found by Lisa. She actually, we went with a chart earlier in the month for the very reason that we were focusing on at the beginning of this month, which is that there's not that much going on in the first week or two of May. And it's not until the the middle part of May and then especially the second half that things start going a little crazy with the simultaneous Uranus and Mars ingress. So about a week before that is the main auspicious electional chart that we want to highlight for the month. And it takes place on May 7th, 2018, at about 12.23 p.m. Uh, local time, whatever city you're in in the world, what you want to do is set the chart for about 17 degrees of Leo rising or so, uh, give or take. So whatever your city is, just figure out what time about 17 degrees of Leo rising will be, and then you'll approximately have about the same chart that I have here. So this chart primarily features it has Leo rising, and the sun is the ruler of the ascendant, and it's placed in Taurus in the 10th whole sign house. And the sun at 17 Taurus is applying to an opposition with Jupiter, which is at 18 degrees of Scorpio. So, one of the things that it features is basically the ruler of the ascendant in a relatively good house and a good sign applying to an exact aspect with a benefic. Uh, the moon is in Aquarius in the seventh whole sign house at 13 degrees of Aquarius, and it's applying to a few things. Its next aspect mm. is actually a trine with Venus at 15 degrees of Gemini, which is up in the 11th house, and eventually it will square the sun and square Jupiter in Scorpio at 18 degrees of Scorpio. So basically, part of the purpose of this chart is that both the ruler of the ascendant and the moon, which are the two primary the two most important planets in any electional chart are both applying to benefic planets. And the major fundamental premise of electional astrology is that separating aspects indicate the past and applying aspects indicate the future. Therefore, you want to, to whatever extent you can, make sure that the two most important planets are applying to benefics, which they are in this chart. 
Um, so the only thing that's a little little iffy that unfortunately we couldn't account for is Mercury is up at 21 degrees of Aries, and it's applying to it's it's pretty closely square Pluto at 21 Capricorn, and it's applying to that conjunction with Uranus at 29 Aries and the square with Mars at 26 Capricorn, which is just just something that we couldn't avoid or you can't really get rid of uh, in the first half of the month. Like you're going to have that no matter what. But if Mercury is not otherwise a very prominent planet in the chart, like by not making it the ruler of the ascendant, then it's not necessarily a deal breaker. Totally. I mean, you've kind of followed the electional, I think it's like the unspoken or maybe it's spoken electional uh, tenant, which is if you've got something tricky, stick it in some cadent houses and don't give it rulership over an angle. Yeah, don't like don't like make it the ruler of the ascendant. Don't do like Virgo rising, for example. If somebody messed up the time on this and did Virgo rising, that would be problematic because then you would make Mercury the ruler of the ascendant, and it would be applying to a square with Mars in day chart. It would have a little bit of mitigation because Mercury is actually in Aries, and I've seen that that did help in some of the elections this past month when Mercury was retrograde in Aries and squaring Mars. It did seem to take the edge off a little bit, the reception, but not. Not completely. Cool. Yeah. So that that's pretty much it. I mean, that's the electional chart for this month. Uh, use it, and hopefully it'll work out well for you. Uh, we found Lisa found three or four other auspicious electional charts for different points in the month. Um, not all of them are as good as this one, but they're serviceable. So we're going to talk about that in the auspicious elections podcast that we're going to actually re- record, I believe, tomorrow. And then we're going to release it for patrons who are signed up on the five and ten dollar tiers through our page on Patreon. So you can find out more information on the astrologypodcast.com website, where I have a page set up for finding out more information about the Auspicious Elections podcast. All right, so that's you know early in the month. So back to basically the second half of the month, which is what we were talking about earlier. Um, once we get away from the very middle of the month, like the 15th and 16th with the Mars and Uranus ingress and square, what is the next major thing? Is there anything else like comparable or like the next down the line? There's nothing comparable, I don't think. But the only thing, just the tiny, my enclosure piece or my final bracket to that middle week of uh, May is the Venus ingress into Cancer on May 19 for a few reasons, but it also sextiles Uranus. So we get two, like this is the second of two aspects to Uranus within a few days of it changing signs. But obviously Venus in Cancer sextile Uranus in Taurus. Um, I mean, I was thinking about this, like normally I love sextiles between like Venus in Cancer and a planet in Taurus because there's often a lot of reception or it's a really stabilizing, nurturing kind of pair. It's a reminder to me that not only are um, it not only is the moon in Taurus not going to be quite as stable going forward with Uranus in Taurus, but even planets in Cancer are going to get this, um, you know, stirring up or, or, um, unstable quality. But I kind of thought it's Venus sextile Uranus. Okay. It's not stable, but there is some, it's a sextile from Venus. There is some palatability or some, I don't want to use positive potential because that's too strong, but there's some sort of ease or, okay, now we've had the problem and here is one possible short-term solution, potentially something that could just grease the wheels a little bit at the end of that week. Um, just from that particular aspect. I don't know what you guys I think. I think that's that, possible. Though. I think, um, 
I think Venus is pretty uncomfortable for the first week that it's in uh, Cancer, which would be from the 18th to the 25th, because um, Venus uh, first sextiles Uranus, and Uranus is not um, – Uranus's significations marry very awkwardly with Venus's. And yeah, kind of opposite, um, and also – so Venus is the ruler of Taurus – and so Uranus getting to zap the sign ruler, I would say, allows it to uh, enact its own significations. So I would actually probably see that as more of a a shakeup, uh, another another little 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 aftershock. And then Venus moves from aspecting Uranus to opposing Saturn over that next week, and that's mm. not very comfortable for Venus. Yeah. Usually, I really enjoy Venus in Cancer. I think it's a nice position. Um, and Venus rules uh, the, that first decan of Cancer, but um, the you know in some in many ways I think the Venus in Cancer instead of indicating comfort will probably indicate discomfort uh, because of the configuration with both Saturn and Uranus. But it, it does clear the opposition to Saturn um, uh, by the twenty sixth. So the last week of the month will have uh, Venus applying to Jupiter, which we like. Applying to a grand trine actually with Jupiter and Neptune and water signs. Yeah. Yeah, that's really nice. Well, what's funny about that is that's actually one of the issues when they were picking out electional charts for UAC, because UAC is going to open with that Venus Saturn opposition still forming. And I think depending on what chart they end up going with for the opening, may or may not end up being kind of important in the electional chart for the opening of the conference. It's it's a tough aspect. I mean, it is one of those aspects that when you see in charts, you I mean, I always want to give the person a big hug and say you're worth more than you think because one of the common manifestations in an individual of a Venus Saturn is some of the self-worth and the not being good enough or I'm only valuable through effort basically. Um, so I, I totally agree, Austin. I think that particularly the period like around the 26th of May when that opposition peaks, uh, people are going to be dealing with maybe questions of value or worth or the limits around enjoyment, the limits around pleasure. And sometimes with the Venus Saturn aspect from a, like a collective or a transitory manifestation, it's that idea that there are external circumstances that are blocking or inhibiting the the pleasure factor or the enjoyment principle. And it's like, I don't want to do this, but I kind of have to. And then I can't do this fun thing instead. Yep. Right. I like that. That's a good keyword for Venus Saturn, like the inhibition or inhibiting of, of pleasure. It's, yeah, I mean, Saturn doesn't go well in what I've observed. Saturn doesn't go well with Venus or the moon because they are, I mean, Venus is wet and Saturn is dry. Like they just have completely opposing priorities or principles. And, and of course, Saturn is going to have the override power in any aspect with Venus. Sure. Yeah. Especially in a case like this where Venus is like applying to an opposition with Saturn. Mm. It, do you have any more on that? No, Austin? not really. I'm curious. Um, you know, Saturn okay. inhibits Venus, right? Venus is like, oh, I just want to hang out and decompress. And Saturn's like, nope. There's, you know, your favorite, your favorite food work. is not on the menu. And we need to, st- we need you to stay a couple hours long. We need you to work over the weekend. Yeah. Not only is your favorite food not on the menu, you can't have it because it's making you sick. Yeah, quite possibly. Um, <laughs> 
I, you know, <laughs> uh, it's worth noting, of course, that shortly after Venus's ingress into Cancer on the 18th, we have the we have the Sun moving into Gemini, right? And that's a, that's a shift. You know, the Sun is mm-hmm. uh, I don't know it provides the stage lighting and backdrop for everything else. Yeah. So, and the difference in you know the difference between Taurus and Gemini is probably most fundamentally one of speed. You know, Taurus is favoring that. Yes, isn't that the difference from Taurus? Well, no, to everything? not necessarily. Like Virgo and Taurus don't have a massive difference in speed, and Cancer. You know, the other the. That's true, and neither does like, Scorpio you know, and Taurus. Mercury is, um, you know, basic or Gemini is basically the most swift moving of the signs or signifies those events, which uh, are really fast. Um, and they may not be significant events, right? But just the, the the pace of things and the number of conversations, et cetera, et cetera, picks up um, when things go into Gemini. And if you guys do, uh, and oh, I suppose I, I want to talk about the full moon a little bit, um, but we should probably just yes. mention the Mercury uh, opposition to Jupiter, which occurs on the 22nd. Yes. Do you have any thoughts on that, Kelly? What? Well, yeah. Um, I because actually the one other opposition we didn't talk about earlier in the month was the Sun opposite Jupiter, which comes in on the eighth of May. Um, I mean, Mercury Jupiter. I, I don't know if I'm. I kind of I like it. I think <laughs> you know it's a stretching of the mind. Yes, if you do mercurial type things like writing or teaching or what have you there can be an excess of that to do. But in some ways, one of the gifts I think of any major Mercury aspect is this broadening or opening of the mindset, which is actually the precursor to any kind of progress or shift or change. Uh, I think there's a little caution here of saying yes to things that will be unreasonable or um, expected to be delivered in an unmanageable timeframe. But yeah, what are your thoughts on this, Austin or Chris? If you have thoughts, um, Austin, do you have thoughts? <laughs> Chris, you're giving me a funny look. Well, whenever I think of like Mercury, Jupiter, I have a hard time. I often go back to like Mercury and Sagittarius because it often gives me like a Mercury and Sagittarius vibe because that's the primary access point that I have for understanding Mercury and Sagittarius is like Mercury being in a domicile of Jupiter and sometimes Mercury going overboard or like. Um, having a tendency to be discursive and very expansive about the way that it talks and communicates and like going on very like long um like i I can think of like an astrologer I know that's like very he's often very characterized for going on these very long tangents and lectures um with this Mercury and Sagittarius placement and, and that's often what I think of when I think of like Mercury Jupiter hard aspects is like sometimes the tendency to go overboard in one's communication style. Um, yeah, a, I, I think that's true. I think that this um, this isn't going to move the needle very much because um, they're both in signs that really have nothing to do with Mercury or Jupiter, um, and they're both uh, mm-hmm. and there's no reception. There's no like, you know, um, you know. I, I think it, you know there'll be some there'll be a little bit of there'll be maybe a, a, a short rash of positive thinking or appreciating what growth uh you've you know what what growth you've done this year or you know what you've learned um you know it's 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 good for for learning things and for thinking a little bit more positively but both of those planets are so out of place in those signs that i i, I don't i you know i think it's it was worth mentioning but 
it's just not that big a deal. Yeah, I mean, the other aspect on that date that is of interest or that had popped up on my radar is the Sun Trine Mars, um, just as a little bit of an activation yeah. in the Mars story. Um, not necessarily a major one, but I mean, yeah, on that day, the Sun Mars aspect is the one that really caught my eye. Yeah, uh, definitely. And you yeah. mentioned the Sun, the Sun Jupiter opposition earlier, and that was the aspect that we tried to capture in the electional oh, chart. Oh, in the electional actually. chart. Okay, got it. That's why it was like Leo rising with the sun applying to the opposition with Jupiter, basically. Got it. Got it. Okay. So um, we're, we get towards the end of the month. There's actually a major outer planet alignment, and it's not like a big notable one to write home about, but uh, Jupiter does try Neptune uh, exactly by, I think, about May 25th, right? Yes, May 25th. Uh, yes. Okay. And this so, is and the second or third Second hit, maybe? Second hit. Yeah. This is the, the second, because now Jupiter's yeah. retrograde. That's right. Yeah. The first hit was December 2017. Uh, but it is. It's two outer planets coming together. I don't... I don't know. I I like to watch this. Maybe I'm biased because it's in the water signs. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a, it's a an easy aspect, and one, one of the problems with those is sometimes not being that dynamic there's not like a lot to say about them because they tend to be a little bit more more subtle yeah the one thing and this occurred to me after um you guys were speaking more on the mercury jupiter i just wonder if it's a little bit of a download or a pulling out of whatever jupiter and scorpio is about um the mercury jupiter opposition it's almost like giving a voice to maybe your personal experience of Jupiter and Scorpio based on the house that's in, in your chart or something collectively that is tied to that theme. And because, you know, Mercury Jupiter happens just a couple of days before Jupiter and Neptune, it's sort of part of maybe that same pattern. Yeah, I, I think of, um, right. you know, so when we're looking at Jupiter and Scorpio, um, you know, some of that water is, mm, should we say, uh, is, is maybe a little dirty, <laughs> you know, Scor- <laughs> At least a little dirty, right? And maybe Jupiter's trying to clean that. Um, yeah. But with, and but Neptune and Pisces is you know it's sort of like pouring in a little liquid fairy dust into that process. Like no, everything's going. No, it's going great. You're growing and expanding as a person, and you know it, I think it's just going to kind of like blur the edges a little bit in whatever process that is. And in as far as a background influence, it's just sort of it's you know it's very connective. It'll make it easier to ignore what's not great. I mean, the thing <laughs> that just popped into my head was like the fake news stuff, you know, the idea of is this the fact? Is this somebody's spin on it? Is it is it real? Is it not real? Um, and it's okay to kind of just disconnect a little bit from reality for a while, but don't be in that mindset while you're filing your taxes or no. signing an important document, for instance. Yeah, we're going to do that while we're at UAC. Right, because this happens during. We're just gonna be like, oh, this is nice. Oh. Okay, so actually, that Jupiter Neptune trine. Of course, that's the UAC. That's the Friday. I wonder if that's about the gathering of like minds. I mean, it is obviously in the UAC sense, but whether other people might experience that sense of this. It's an alternate reality. Like a con- going to a conference, going to an astrology conference is not real life but you get to do a lot of fun, enjoyable things mm-hmm. outside your normal boundaries because we usually are much later than normal and we're often drinking a little bit more than we normally do. And there's that sense of inspiration that comes from 
bringing down some of those rigid barriers, you know, about schedules or routines or responsibilities that we're normally yeah, very totally. focused on. Cool. Yeah, this this is the actually the the aspect that's going exact the day before our podcast meet up on the twenty sixth. So this is like what the twenty fifth. So this is going to be one of the primary things active for for that day. Yes, the other one is the Venus Saturn. Right. <laughs> I was like, I don't want to pop a bubble here, but yeah, that, I mean that's the. the 25th of May is Jupiter Neptune and the 26th of May is Venus Saturn, which I think is interesting because there's two distinctly different, but still very influential aspects running over that same sort of two day period. Yeah, that's always interesting. I remember going to past conferences, like one a few years ago, where there's like certain aspects that are forming in the first half of the week. And then there's other aspects and, and then they go exact and then pass. And then there's like other aspects happening in the second half of the week. It's interesting always to watch those energy shifts during the course of a week. And sometimes it can be very like obvious or very distinctive. And then that's going to bring us though to the end of the month, which I know Austin wants to. Yeah, it's a very interesting full moon. Um, So uh, Chris, can you bring up the chart? Well, I guess most of our listeners can't see it anyway. But well, the full moon, let's see, what are the degrees? Yeah. Is, it, is it eight? Yeah, they're both at eight. So what's really interesting eight eight is Sag. that both, of the, both the sun and the moon at eight Gemini and eight Sagittarius uh, are both closely conjunct very important fixed stars. Okay, so we thought okay, it was yeah, important the, for the um, same The sun reason. will be conjunct Aldebaran yeah. and the moon will be conjunct Antares. And these are these are not just you know kind of important. These are you know two of the four royal stars. They're they're you know they're kind of a big deal. And so that that lends a, a it lends a, a, a how should we say a modicum of stellar oomph to what would already be important because it's a full moon. <laughs> a modicum of stellar oomph. Are we understating there because of this significance? I mean, it's two of the four royal stars. They are the two that are in the tightest opposition aspect. So this this pair of that eight Gemini, eight Sag, you know, is a very powerful part of the sky. And Antares is the star associated with autumn, um, the heart of the Scorpio, if you like, or the the uh, the sorry the depth. I when I first learned about Antares, it was like the deepest, almost Scorpio part of the sky. And it's interesting to me that we're having a full moon come into to that space. Yeah, I mean, it's it's probably the most martial star. It's because it is associated with with wars and things ending. Yeah, well, and just you know, um, uh, friction and conflict. I, I see it initiating a lot of stuff. Uh, I, I don't see it ending that much. Um, okay, so stirring up tension or bringing tension out to the surface, kind of thing. Uh, I, I would just, yeah, it's more. I, I guess I would think I think of it more in terms of friction and struggle, um, and that can be um, that can be positive. You know, you're like, no, I'm going to do this. This is on, or like, but you also get people like, nope, that will not stand. Um, I'm going to have to take a stand against that. Yes. Um, and so, in general, I've you know. Thinking about the fixed stars, I, I was re- I was reading the other day. I was rereading a portion of the the Picatrix. I was talking about um, the the what fixed stars do when they are conjoined a planet for a talisman. And it what the Picatrix stated was that the stars have a more lasting and immobile light, 
whereas the planet's light is constantly changing yes. and their position is constantly changing. And so by by placing a fixed star behind a planet, you give uh, you you lend whatever the the nature of that talisman is, whatever it's supposed to do. Uh, you lend it endurance, and you 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 lend it the ability to make a lasting impact. And so, if we were to you know consider a lunation like this on the same principles, it would be that there will be events that have a lasting impact that occur. Around this time, rather than those, rather than those which simply arrive and then dissipate within, you know, within a week or two. Yeah, that's a beautiful point that I remember being really struck by when I learned about fixed stars was that because they generate their own light, they have, um, they're incredibly, they're significantly more powerful, uh, you know, in terms of generating energy or force of energy than the planets are. And so when when we get these alignments that pull in the power of a fixed star, it is significantly more impactful. The potential impact is much greater than just it's a regular yeah, exactly. form in Sagittarius, for instance. And it is only what 18, every eighteen or every nineteen years that we would have a full moon around. That would these be one. That would be very in interesting Sag. to to research. Yeah. So yeah, it's a very um, it's a much more significant thing to keep so that's good to just let people know to keep an eye on it yeah and, and i hate to keep mentioning the conference for those that that won't be there but it's just interesting this is falls on the very last day of the conference so this full moon it's like it happens that morning so it's like the last day having a full moon happened then and having sort of like the culmination of the conference and i'm sure what? like the closing ceremony take place will be really oh, it'll it'll, it'll look mighty full the night before right like i uh, was and that's the regulus awards banquet the monday night right well that actually is it is it that monday night yes is it, that's actually it's not a sunday night. it's not a weekend night at this conference it's the monday night so we'll okay, be going then, yeah. into that awards thing um under the energy of this full moon yeah, it'll already be in Sag. Well, and exactly. And you're right, Austin, because the full moon looks big and energetically or experientially full for more than just the moment. You know, it's it's a couple of nights, like night before, night after. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, that's exciting. All right. Especially well, I'm excited if, if about one it. had something in their chart near the early part of Sagittarius and one might be in the spotlight for something at that time. Right. Up for a, like an award or something. It, it, you know, I, I've seen this happen when people win, you know, the U.S. Tennis Open. Uh, what's her Aussie, this Aussie tennis player? She beat Serena. She's got Sam Stosa. She has Venus in Pisces. And she's, this particular U.S. Open tournament a few years ago, the full moon was on her Venus in Pisces and she managed to beat Serena Williams and win, win the title. Uh, mm. which is a significant feat in women's sport. So full moons, there you go. Interesting. All right. Well, we'll see what happens. I think we'll all be sitting together at dinner that night, so it should be, should be a good time. That's true. We, won't, we uh, won't have our cutoff time, so we could be up for hours. Right. That's dangerous. I think that we're going to have to have somebody keep an eye on us during the course of that week. But no one has to speak the next day, no. I don't think. You guys aren't speaking on the 29th. Well, I have to give a workshop on the 30th, so if you guys like – that's that means you can recover on the night before the, you know yeah we'll see we'll see what happens um 
So I guess that brings us to the end of the month, though. But that is literally the end of month. It's the this. I don't know if you guys saw anything else, but it's the only thing in the last week of May that is going on. But it is quite quite a something. Well, there's Mercury's ingress into Gemini, which oh, happens, I beg your pardon, same day. Yeah, later the same day. Yeah, and really, you know, as I said before, um, has the same quality of picking up the pace um, mm-hmm. that the sun, the sun's movement from Taurus into Gemini did. Yeah. So Mercury goes in later that that evening or that afternoon on May 29th into Gemini. The full moon happens in Sagittarius right at the end of the month. And then that pretty much closes out May and takes us into June. Yeah. And we'll talk about that next time. Yeah. We're still establishing when exactly we're going to record the next forecast, record and release the next forecast episode. But we're either going to do it right before UAC or I have no idea what what the other option is, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. All right, guys. Well, I think that's the end of end of this episode. So thanks a lot for for joining me, and I'm looking forward to seeing both of you in person uh, in just a few weeks here. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yes, that's going to be amazing. And yeah, thanks for having us. It's always interesting to take apart the month. Yeah, I mean, some months are more more interesting than others, but it's always interesting to get a different perspective on it and to try to anticipate. And, you know, just coming off of this month, because we're only like halfway through, I guess we're more than halfway through April. It's just been, it's always interesting to have these discussions with you guys ahead of time and then to see that stuff play out over the next few weeks and how sometimes how literal it is and other times how metaphorically some of those alignments work out, but still that the symbolism, you know, plays out in different people's lives in these really striking ways. So I really appreciate each month having these conversations with you because it gives me personally as an astrologer like a nice heads up about some of the stuff to pay attention to. Oh, totally. I learn a lot from them, um, which I know our listeners do too, but it's it's great to have that kind of pulled yeah. insight. It's useful to compare notes, definitely. definitely. Yeah. Sure. All right, cool. Well, I think then that's it for for this month. So thank you to everybody for listening. Uh, of course, be sure to subscribe uh, to the astrology podcast through the astrologypodcast.com slash subscribe. There's like five different ways that you can do it. So just pick one and sign up to follow to get news and updates. You can find out more information about Austin at austincopic.com, more information about Kelly at kellysastrology.com. And for me, just go to the astrologypodcast.com and you'll find links there. So if you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to give it a good rating on iTunes since that helps other people to find us. Thanks to all of our patrons who supported the Astrology Podcast this month since it helps us to, to do different things and have different guests on and send people mics and everything else. And um, yeah, so thanks for your support. All right. Um, I think that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time.